This is the Digital Kung Fu Show, episode 51. Digital Kung Fu is something you should see. Videos and podcasts reveal the digital key. Digital disruption is something you should know. Conquer it and you will soon see your business grow. Answer all the questions. See the road ahead. Know the market strategies become a thoroughbred. Know the state of technology. Share it with someone new. And suddenly you will conceive a different point of view. All because it took the time for digital kung fu. Hey guys, welcome back to another cracking edition of the Digital Kung Fu Show. Our guest today is Anthony Stonefield. He's a tech wizard, one could describe him like that. Uh, He actually hails from South Africa. Uh, He moved over to the States in the 1980s and spent some 36 years there or so, the majority of which was actually in Silicon Valley. And this is where our story begins. So allow me to provide some context here. When Anthony was running around Silicon Valley, Napster, what a name, and and I'm sure many of you haven't spoken that word or heard that word for many years, uh, didn't even exist yet. The MP3 didn't even exist yet. But Anthony and his team are building tech, and Nokia gets wind of it. They fly over to Silicon Valley. One thing leads to another. And Anthony and his team eventually create the world's global mobile ringtone market for the very first time. Do you remember the days of the Nokia 5110? That's the game with the uh, snake uh, game on it. And remember the ringtones on that phone? Yeah, those are the ringtones. He then went on to sell that company for $42 million. And we talk about more about that exit. But pay attention to the part of the episode where we talk about stem cells. This is a startup that Anthony is involved in that has the potential to enable people to actually walk again. And it's in clinical trials at the moment. And I think this is just indicative of just such a great story. So I'm incredibly grateful to have had Anthony with me for this particular episode, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it as much as I did. So without further ado, enter Anthony Stonefield. Hey guys, welcome to the 51st edition of the Digital Kung Fu Show. I have the great privilege of having with me in a hot box of, of uh, some kind <laughs> at the uh, new co-working space that we're uh, occupying. Um, and his name is Anthony Stonefield. Anthony, thank you so much for your time today. It's great to have you in the hot seat. Yeah, no problem. Excellent. Okay, cool. So many of you probably don't know the caliber of, I should say, this particular guest, um, and he's highly regarded in many fields. Uh, we were talking just before we started recording about all the different things that you're currently doing. Mm. The least of which is uh, brokering uh, gold exchange deals. Yes, yes, and that's the one we're not going to talk about. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> so, for those of our listeners who don't perhaps know the full story behind uh, the man, the legend that is Anthony Stonefield, uh, why don't you fill us in on some of the headlines? Uh, okay, let me burst the balloon for you. Um, all right, so so I think yeah, claim to fame. Let's just say a little South African kippy that headed out um, trying to escape what looked like a war. Um, in the 80s and, and went over to the United States, bounced around very various universities, um, um, ended up in in uh, Santa Cruz, which for people who don't know it is the acid capital of the United States. Here I am, uh, my family thinking that I'm an acid freak hippie communist because I ran away from the country Get <laughs> proudly um, in Santa, <laughs> Santa Cruz. Um, uh, so... I, w- I hooked up with uh, one of my professors at the time and convinced her to shift away from um, being a um, tenure track to being a musician. Uh, she was really pretty good sing- singer-songwriter. 
And then I found myself lumped with the job of actually getting her career going. And this is like a cash, cash earning under the table, you know, hippie expat. <laughs> Santa Cruz, lovely times. But uh, um, so what I had done is at the, at the time found out what was going on in Silicon Valley, which at the time was bulletin boards and email. But that was sufficient for me to realize that when I'm mastering a CD, I can take the digital bits off that CD, compress them and distribute them through pro- uh, public networks. Mm. And that may be a way to break the bottleneck for independent artists through uh, f- f- in, in marketing and distribution. So I came up with this notion of a, a way to distribute music through through electronic means and shopped it around and found a little group right in Santa Cruz where I was living um, called Ayuma. No one will remember them now, but uh, they were in a sense the mp2.com of the world before the mp3 came along. And at the same time, I shopped the idea around and caught the attention of Bell Labs. Tech, they're the people that invented the telephone in, in the East Coast. Like the Bell Labs. Yes, the actual AT&T Bell Labs. Sorry, I'm right now in, the, in Northwest California. Okay, great. <laughs> what year was this now? Ugh, scary. 1990s, 1993, I think, 93, 94. Okay, gotcha. Um, so what I did is I assembled a team of South Africans um, who were all self-taught. I was self-taught. I never, never did a business course in my life. And we um, we created a prototype of what is today iTunes, and we did that as a consultant to AT and T Bell Labs. What happened with that? It actually so they spent about thirty million dollars on it, and it became this massive, intense thing with digital uh, encryption, all kinds of copyright protections built-in billing systems. It was awesome. <laughs> awesome. And uh, as soon as we launched, we got undercut completely by MP3 who gave away the songs for free. <laughs> so Oops. lesson number one <laughs> in entrepreneurial, um, in the entrepreneurial's, uh, in the entrepreneur's life. So uh, what happened is we stayed involved with AT&T. They had us eye deep in the source code of what was called AAC codec. The, they had originally been a telephone company it was a way of comp- you're doing it now, yeah. compressing audio so that it can be in digital form. But they were using it for telephone services. We went in and tuned it for music services. Ah. So we actually sculpted the shape of the audio in AAC, and it now resides inside of iTunes. So it's uh, to this day, yeah, to this day, because wow. AT and T was a co-owner along with uh, Apple and Sony and front of of, of the actual IP. Mm-hmm. But my team now, which consisted of a whole bunch of South Africans and uh, and one token Brit, <laughs> got to have one Brit yeah. in a sea of America. Well, he was a special Brit. He was uh, Thomas Dolby's. If you remember, blinded me by science might predate you. Uh, I probably before my time. Yes, I would say so. Sadly, um, <laughs> but he was an awesome. He was uh, put it this way: he was one of the first people to innovate digital music in the 1980s in the, in the UK. Wow. So he was a really, really good at digital audio, and he actually helped us shape the music and create essentially a digital product, music product. Um, anyway, long story short, MP3 killed that business, and we stayed in touch with AT&T. We built a number of different applications and finally caught the attention of Nokia in, in Finland, who said, these cats in Santa Monica seem to know what the hell they're doing. They, maybe they can tell us what's going to happen in the future of digital music, media. So they decided to come over and talk to us. And while they were making plans to do that, we thought, oh, shit, we'd better think of something to tell them. And at the time, you couldn't, you know, they were a telephone company, you know, a mobile phone company. At the time, you couldn't do anything on a mobile phone except like dial into listen to music or something. Yeah. But a friend of mine said, you know what, there's this little like tone on it that you can change. 
Um, and you should look into it. There's some people in Sonora playing around with it. So my South African CTO reverse engineered a Nokia phone and found the monophonic ringtone, essentially. And we created a thousand ringtones uh, at a monophonic audio, put them on a website as a prototype, and just said, all right, we're going to show them on the one side of the spectrum how you can change the ringtone on your phone. And on the other side of the spectrum, how you can push full video from one phone to another, but we'll do that in PowerPoint. Right? <laughs> well, that four weeks later, by circumstance, by serendipity, our prototype site had something like 500,000 users and was growing at about 100,000 users a day. It was absolutely ridiculous. We hit this inflection curve simply because one of our partners, another South African who was in Australia, had mentioned our site to a Telstra engineer who had put it on a bulletin board and it went viral. No way. And we started the ringtone business worldwide. People were getting ringtones for free. Like I said, the legend. <laughs> I'm f- famous for ringtones. It's kind of like a little limp now. Any of those things follow you around? You? <laughs> exactly. Whatever happened to ringtones? Why did they? Well, so ringtones evolved. Uh, we, we built up, uh, we dominated North American market. It, it was my first claim to fame because I built a company that was, uh, you know, really significant. And during the blowout, the dot-com blowout, we managed to sell it for $42 million to Vivendi Universal. And, uh, and, and, uh, th- they then hit the inflection point because we were still struggling at the time when we sold it. They hit the inflection point because WAP, which means the first browsers on the phones came in mm. and an ability to bill against your, your, your operator. So that happened and suddenly ringtones went through the roof. And, uh, and, and, but Vivendi had problems. They had to resell the company. So I helped them resell it to another American company called Infospace. And uh, Infospace drove $1.5 billion of sales through that business. And we dominated North America. And most importantly, the South African uh, entrepreneurs and engineers, we created the first form of digital content transmission from one cellular network to another because we used the – all there was was SMS. That was the only thing that transacted between – digital that transacted between networks. But we re-encoded binary data onto those SMSs and we were able to transfer. So we were able to serve – out of Santa Monica, people in, you know, in, in South Korea, in Italy, all over the world, and in California, because California was the only place that had GSM. But we were able to serve ringtones to them. And so we were the first people to bridge that, and we started the mobile content business. That's incredible. I mean, when you look back at that, I mean, like, what kind of stands out for you the most? Like, is there a feeling that you get? Like, are you proud about it? Or are you disappointed that you didn't stick around with it long enough? I'm, I'm really bummed that we sold that early. I mean, it literally went through the roof uh, really soon after that. And, you know, as I said, we, we hit at one point, the last year I was involved, we, we, uh, we drove $190 million in a year in selling ringtones, for God's sake. Actually, and also little graphics. We started layering graphics then on top of that. So, what, what, uh, but what stuck out, not so much the sadness about having uh, stepped out too early in terms of selling. Um, but, uh, but what stood out was that era. That era was like, it was like the sixties all over again. There was so much belief in what the internet can do for the, for mm-hmm. societies and for the world and, and being immersed in that environment was, was really, really awesome. That was pre.com boom. Or it was at the end of the dot-com boom the actually. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So there were all these, what I considered junky <laughs> bubble businesses around and they were making a fortune and people were cashing them and walking away. And we were struggling on something that we felt was actually real. Mm. Um, I'd love to ask you a question. I, I, I speak a lot about digital content to, mm-hmm. to my clients 
Um, and I just wanted to pick your brain. Obviously you've, you've kind of been there and done that in many respects. And what's the future of digital content, mobile digital content going to look like in your view? Do you have a view? (laughs) You know what? I think that I've matured to a point that I have absolutely no forecasting ability anymore in digital media. <laughs> I mean, I was really being the fact that I actually was into selling songs. Do you realize that that's ownership? We don't have the notion of ownership anymore. We have the ocean, notion of streamed. Mm. Everything is streamed to you. We were always thinking that one day there'll be these broadband ubiquitous networks, but I felt like there were so many cost issues and device issues and, you know, dropouts and all that kind of stuff. I thought it was early, but that era is now arriving. We see it less here, but in the United States, it's, it's happening. We're seeing the growth of mobile video, for example, you know, going, going 20 times per year. It's driving now all of the, uh, the increase in broadband usage. So, so I think we're moving into this place where broadband is truly ubiquitous. The devices are just blown out. You can do almost anything with the device now. So I'm no longer in the game of predicting where it's going to go. I'm now listening to see where people are trying to, you know, peg their future and looking at that and saying, yeah, I can see a good five, six, seven year future in that. And that's a lot. Yeah. You know, let's see if we can monetize that. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I suppose you have to monetize the next three years. You know what? It's, it's I used to hang light, you know, that, uh, and, and in California. And the one thing about that is invisible updrafts. You basically like a hawk. You, you're using various cues like the ground. You can see the grass moving and the trees moving and you head that direction. Or you see a cloud above and you know it's being formed by updraft. You head that way and suddenly you feel this kick in your stomach and up goes the, the glider and you try to stay in that updraft. And all it is now is getting into a business, riding it up to where you can and then exiting and then go find another updraft. Yeah. You know, there's no end point anymore. It's all a, it's all a spiral. Yeah. We, well, let's talk about uh, uh, sort of updrafts, if, you, if mm-hmm. you want to call them that. I mean, how do you spot them? You know what? It's, it's, it's not something that uh, I feel like I read about because I think there's a lot of gunk that's, that people re- read about. There's, so much. Yeah. <laughs> thank, so much. Thank you. But, um, you know, occasionally you'll hear someone say something and you go, wow, you know, I feel like I just felt the edge of an updraft there. So you talk to them a little more. And in many cases you go, could you like turn into this a little and they turn in a little and you see something happen. You go, okay, let's sit down and create a plan, a series of hypotheses tests. Yeah. And let's see if we found ourselves an after. And it literally is invisible, mm. right? Mm. It's a sensation. It's something you think you suspect, and then you feel it happen and you don't know how long it's going to last, but you go for it. Yeah. I suppose this is why failing often and failing forward is such a and, and, great principle. And, and, all, and, and my skill really is to fail fewer times <laughs> really? but really you still fail you know qualify I mean? that for me well you, you know what i mean look in, in let me give you these two data points that i think are useful for anyone who's trying to get into the into entrepreneurial world number one is in silicon valley the average startup gets funded on its 22nd presentation to a venture capital that's legitimate those are their real numbers yeah. yes yeah. 22nd i know most people want to give up at about six they go, okay, no one's interested in this. Well, no one's KFC. What's that guy? What's the story there? He failed like a thousand and thousand times and thousand first yeah. time someone bought his recipe yeah, or something. Yes. But which also means you have to be somewhat insane to stick in it. Totally. I totally would have given up. Probably, fuck this. Yeah. I'm going to try something else. So, so there's, there's that. And, you know, I have this weird, you know, I have too much time, I guess. I have this weird theory about the, pro, pro, the proportion of light matter and dark matter in the universe and this notion of entropy. 
everything is chaos, entrepreneurs have to find things to assemble that make something new. Mm. That's a magical job, you know, mm. and it does. It takes someone who's crazy and passionate, you know, and then we were talking earlier about corporates. Mm. The corporates are the factories, you know, they're not there to innovate. They're there to take these things once they've been birthed. So this is all about finding, finding people who have a great idea, making sure there's an updraft associated with it, and then helping them lift to a point where corporates start going, hmm, that could add to our bottom line. Yeah, or it would save us a billion dollars to know our customer or something exactly. like that. Exactly. Yeah. Or if we could kill them, it would save us a billion dollars. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I suppose, you, I mean, it's totally true what you're saying because um, it's why startups so often get bought out before they really become a global right. unicorn. Do you know yes, what I mean? Yes, so yes. Snapscan, take for instance, mm-hmm. or... Um, Anyway. Well, we've got an interesting trend now. We've got these so-called unicorns buying companies. So at least they came from they came from startups, and they still have that memory. You know, the founders were start, startup guys, and I think they're getting better at build, bringing a startup in and keeping the entrepreneurial spirit in there, mm. which is usually from incentivizing the founders incredibly, yeah. so that they don't give up. But just to give them a corporate job and you know stock options, that's the end of a startup. You know, mm. and then putting putting them into this environment where they cannot pivot. Mm. Really quickly, they can't can't maneuver. They've uh, um, they've got checklists against what they have to do, and then incredible political overhead, um, and then you know restrictions on what they can say. I mean, a lot of startups succeed by being controversial. Is it fair to say that when that happens, like corp- the corporate environment is the place where startups go to die? Yes. Well, I, I've had that personal experience many times, and you basically go, okay, well, that's the end of that career. That was fun. And let me see what I can take of it and roll into the next thing, you know? Yeah. But let me say, Matt, I do not think I'm actually spending more and more time with, uh, you know, mid- mid-sized companies and corporates who have a recognition that they need to have innovation somewhere, at least somewhat in the genetic code of the corporations that has been brought in, but possibly also a little R&D lab or a corporate VC group. And we cannot use our normal technique of completely absorbing you know the the borg <laughs> creating the borg but let's <laughs> let's keep these crazy people in the skunk works on the side mm. and have their job be to rock our world mm. every week you know and they have to be completely detached from the corporate they dance cannot bodies, be held right? to those yes yeah. they can't be held to the same standards mm. and uh, in many cases corporates can't uh, risk the brand impact of of, of trying new things either just a, a random question for you i was talking to one of my clients as a JST listed mm-hmm. clients. And we were talking about this exact thing. And I, I asked him whether he would outsource that entire lab function to me. So in other words, I would resource it, skill it, part finance it if that was necessary, uh, build the necessary processes and literally a bespoke skunk works for this massive company. And he said, yes, in principle he would do it, but the people in that skunk works environment wouldn't understand their business. What, what do you say to that as a kind of a business challenge or reason not to do something? It's a perfect challenge. And firstly, I think it's a brilliant idea. It's, it's what has to happen. The fact that the people don't understand it has a pro and a con. The con is they do need to have a, you know, rough functional idea of which way they're heading, which stars they're heading towards. On the other hand, they need to think differently. So they need to know where the box is, but not think in the box. So you do want people who are going to rock your world. You want them to, to, 
look what Donald Trump's doing. <laughs> Just shake things up, yeah. you know? Yeah. There, there has to be positive stuff that comes out of a shakeup if you're a confident company that is that knows where it's going. So you do need those people. You know, it's not just like one crazy CEO that you eventually have to fire because he's too crazy. No, you need these young people who are seeing the future, young spirited people, and people ready to um, to make experiments and challenge. Excuse me, it's yeah. my EA phoning. Yeah, I mean, that looks like a pretty important call. It's funny how you even mute it <laughs> and then it still comes through on your... It's, this is why we're living in the connection economy, apparently. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing is that ringtone. Yeah. Oh, was that one of yours? No. Oh, no, no, oh, that's a horrible ringtone. That's an example of you need some help, that ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> no, but what I wanted to point out is out of all the modalities in which you can get communicated with these days, the phone call is still the one that is almost like an ambulance coming down. You've got to look at that one, mm. right? You get an SMS, you go, I'll look at that next. You get a WhatsApp, you go, no, that's kind of probably, probably social, maybe a little business. I'll, I'll look at that after lunch. But a phone rings, Especially if it rings twice. Yeah. Right? That then is you know. like urgency. Yeah. Right? That's emergency. You know. it's, a, it's a major red flag. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's ending. And we've changed now. We, yeah. you know, I, each of us has maybe 10, 12, 14 different modalities in which we communicate, almost all in real time, but they all mean something different. Mm-hmm. You know? Give just an, elaborate a bit more about the modalities. So, so uh, for example, Skype. Okay. There could be a Skype ring or there could be a Skype message. Uh-huh. At night, I get Skype messages. Very annoying. Yeah. Um, during the day, people will ring with Skype. Um, but Skype, it, it, even with Skype, for example, you know that that is a convenience because it's free. But if you need to urgently get a hold of someone, you're going to ring them with a regular phone. Yeah, that's right. right. So that one modality is your cell phone, phone call, the SMS, the WhatsApp, the Instagram, the yeah. Facebook chat, the Facebook call. Um, you know, it, it just goes on and on and on. There's so many different ways and they all, they, you, you, you interpret them all slightly differently. Yeah. We are turning into a different kind of animal. Yeah. You know, I know there's a lot of criticism you see. uh, It seems like the older generation now, but even in the late 20s, people are looking at everyone on their cell phones and they're going, look at this. We've we've lost contact. We've lost our humanity. It's not true. We're evolving into a new being. Yeah. It's the only beginning. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a hell. We just touched the the, the tip of the iceberg, man. We're Mm -hmm. about to do massive transformation. Yeah. And what are we going to say? Oh, it's like the Beatles. It's a bad thing, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the internet hasn't even had sex yet then. <laughs> There's plenty of sex on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> so I hear. Yeah. 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 That's why Pornhub's not the, the most visited homepage after dig. <laughs> but um, like, do you want to bail on that one? <laughs> yeah. Let's fuck that. I think we were, we were going to talk about corporate versus okay. entrepreneur and we, yeah. we were there and I've been in both. Generally, I, um, I've generally been hired into, no, bought into corporates. I did get hired. I've, I've worked with Nokia, I've worked with Qualcomm, AT&T. Uh, Infospace, these ones, a couple of those companies bought my company in, or I was brought in to innovate within it, which was really exciting. I did that at Qualcomm. Very, very fun experience. Um, but it, it really is, it's, you know, I don't dislike corporates. They're a necessity. It's almost like, um, and I am in stem cells, so I can talk with authority on here. A startup is like a stem cell. It has to create the germinal components, but then those, what they call progenitor cells, then they make the whole tissue. Mm-hmm. So the startup has to create that germinal piece and then the corporate makes the whole tissue. Or the innovation lab needs to build the... That's right. That's yeah. right. And if we don't innovate, we ain't going nowhere. So know? that would be, is that the same as saying the startup needs to build the proof of concept? Yeah. The tech, underlying tech, for instance. Yeah. And then here you go, Mr. Corporate, go the, off and build the rest of the, the arm and the limb. The disruption, the deviation. Yeah. 
And that's, remember I was telling you, my degree was in biology. I see it as a biological thing. Mm. Some of them will work. Now, in, in, in natural selection, maybe you do 10,000 innovations and two of them work. In startup world, if you're good at it, now we can use our brains, our noggins, you do 10 startups and two of them work. Well, that's quite good odds, actually, especially because those two can have a much more than 10x um, uh, uh, effect. Question for you. You mentioned Qualcomm just now. Mm-hmm. Were they asking you to install innovation into their DNA as a company? Um, actually, it was a really good little uh, op- uh, operation. It went for a while, and I don't think it's going anymore. It's called Qualcomm Labs. So one of my former partners during the ringtone era was hired to run Qualcomm Labs. And so they went around saying, we're going to put 10, 10 respected, experienced entrepreneurs to come and run evolved businesses from within our own intellectual property on the campus with full access. They get a budget and they do whatever the heck they want, but they do get to patch in to some of the um, the advanced engineers we have on, on campus. And they, get, and, and they get access to our incredible tech. So, you know, I was given an incredible opportunity which is that they had created the first software-based push-to-talk system, which is where two, you know, basically push a button on one phone and it beeps on the other. Mm. I mean, literally in under two seconds, cold start, which, trust me, takes an enormous amount of energy and, and, and intellect and horsepower on the, on the network and on the, uh, on the processes. So they had this ability to push-to-talk, and they said, well, push-to-talk is one thing, but can you come in and build a value-added services over on top of that? So I came in and brought my team and my, a couple of my original South Africans uh, from the original the dream team. Tone business. The goon squad. Yeah. <laughs> trust anyone else. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and we built something that is WhatsApp supercharged. You know, WhatsApp, WeChat hasn't come close. We created something called Yagada, which was a most awesome app. An ability, for example, not only just, you know, the, the messaging, but I could shoot, I could project. Remember in the beginning with Nokia? Yeah. Project media. I could project a video or a photo onto your phone and I could touch on it. And you could see where my fingerprint was. And I could move my finger around on it because we had this really high, uh, really low latency signaling system between the phones. So I could bridge the phones and we could do magical things. If you moved your phone, it would indicate on mine that you're moving. You know, little things like that. Yeah, yeah. Incredible telepresence that we haven't actually seen today yet. Mm. Um, and it, was, it, it, it got quite a lot of accolades inside of Qualcomm and then was transferred to an operating division, which is where innovations go to mm-hmm. die. <laughs> so how do, so I, I want to talk about two things. One, how do you set up a lab? Like what are the kind of founding principles slash people slash processes you need? Or just philosophy if you want to go keep it high level? Um, and then... Once you get to a point of it being set up, how do you then um, facilitate the innovation process in such a way that it actually sees the light of day? So I suppose is the point of departure there that you're either trying to get the corporate antibodies to sign it off and, and sort of say, listen, we're going to scale this thing now to so come and bring your your resources, your significant customer data, for instance, to scale this thing. Mm-hmm. So that puts it immediately into firmly into the corporate space and oftentimes it doesn't see the light of day. How do you then circumnavigate that? What would you, what would you suggest? Jeez, Matt, I think that the thing is that's a very big question because there's so many different ways in which you can do it. I mean, the, the lightest touch really is probably a uh, corporate VC where they're essentially co-invested with external, you know, high, high net worth or, or super angels. They just co-invested and they get first look, you know, and that's such a light touch because that allows those innovators to totally innovate and know 
that Big Daddy out there is one of our distribution points, mm-hmm. and we just have to occasionally sniff over and find out what they're, where they're hurting or where they want to go, all the way through to an, in, in, an internal skunk works. And that one is where you do need a hell of a lot of process to make sure it fits with the culture and with the cadence of that company. So that's a, that's, that's a tough one. It basically comes down to which company, what is their, their future horizon look like, what kind of people you want, and how involved they want to get. Do you believe that model can work, though? Uh, I, I'm an optimist. You know, I'm a startup yeah. guy. <laughs> the wrong have to be, yeah. I think I think they can work, and it it you know they may not necessarily work in the way you expect them to work. I mean, it's almost like you've probably heard this when, when a startup first gets funded by a smart investor. Very very seldom does the investor think that they're going to see that particular business plan or that particular product come to light. The business plan is essentially a domain within which they're applying youth energy and ingenuity and it pivots and changes and eventually it comes out as something completely different or something similar, but uh, not, not, you know, because you're inventing, you're, you're whiteboarding, you're inventing to start with. The reality is that chasm, you have to jump. It's a completely different thing when you come out the other side. I mean, I started to innovate music and I end up with ringtone. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was kind of disappointed in a sense, <laughs> but the effect was that ringtones were ringing all the time. So if I wanted my product to see the light of day, it was seeing it 10, 20 times per person by millions of people all over the world. No one could listen to that much music. So, you know, you can count it one way or the other. Yeah. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Let's talk about the, what you, I mean, you've got the stem cell startup, mm-hmm. right? Then there's obviously numerous others. You're an advisor to startups. Rooster, I think, is, yes, um, Rooster Media. is one. Well, and, and let me just say on Rooster Media, this is a great end point to what I was saying before. I did all that stuff with ringtones, which was what I consider an, an alert. It's an alert, a piece of media alert. It, it, just like when your phone rang there, mm. it awakens you to something, right? So when I heard that they were awakening people with custom sounds, I'm like, well, that's kind of like a ringtone, except the event is not an incoming call. The event is you have set a time to wake up. Yeah. So, uh, so to, and they also, their back end is essentially push media. So they're pushing the media to the phone. Well, they're the definition of a, con- a digital content startup, right? Yes, yeah. absolutely. So that is, that's like putting an old glove on, mm. you know, and, but in a new environment with new people and in Cape Town, which is awesome. Um, so, so it's an, it's an incredible fit and, uh, and I have incredible aspirations for them because, you know, think about where, where the last inventory is unused inventory. It's on the, that is the most valuable right on that cell phone. 
And every time the alarm goes off, someone has to roll over and aim their finger at the, at the dismiss button, you know, the silence button. Yeah. And for that moment, you've got, with any luck, millions of people every day getting exposed to your inventory, audio and visual inventory. So this application can sidle its way into being one of those top five or six apps that everyone uses every day. And that's what's tremendously exciting with uh, Rooster. How are they doing now? Uh, they're, they're, in, they're very happy. They've, uh, they've raised their full seed round. Okay. They've uh, get this, their staffing together. They've got their strategy um, uh, being reformed. That was Zach, Zach George's startup bootcamp. Yes, yes. Accelerator, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Awesome guys. Um, they, they are in, they're in the best time right now, which is having just received the first raise, a significant raise, and the open field. And they're looking at Silicon Valley, and I'm, I'm getting them ready for that uh, shock. <laughs> yeah. What um, what would what advice would you give someone in that situation? I mean, how, I mean, obviously we're talking about two significantly different ecosystems. Um, going into it as virgins, because I mean, it's Dom and Dom and Josh. Uh, Dom and Josh. I mean, you know, they're young guys. Yeah, and uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna get into a conversation here about what it's like to be a South African who has uh, aspirations to grow and almost everything is about where else can I go? Right. And, uh, such a truism that, eh? you know, and, and I'm a dual citizen. So I have that open door and I don't feel that urgency at all. So for me, it's like, you know what, if we can make it work in Philippi or in Soweto or in Santon, it just needs to have that, 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 uh, genetic code whereby it can expand internationally really rapidly and it's relevant anywhere. So Silicon Valley is really great. I, I, by the way, encourage the young entrepreneurs to go there because that is a shock that is really worth it, you know, having in your career. To go there with something or just yeah, to go no, there? Go there? No, go there with something. You go there with nothing, you're just going to be gobsmacked, you know? Yeah. No, go there with something and then see what it looks like, you know, in that context mm. and see how the wolves set in on you and like help you and, and, and tear it apart at the same time. That's really good for you. Um, it's not necessarily the right place to, to succeed in your startup, but it's a really good place to gain strength as an entrepreneur. What do you mean it's not, it's not well, necessarily the right place? They, these places are overblown, overvalued, and highly competitive, and to some extent a little bit political in terms of who you know. So there's a lot of gatekeepers. So there are now more innovative investors who specifically say we only invest in companies that are not in the Bay Area or New York or London, or Berlin, or Tel Aviv. Exactly. You yeah. know, basically, we don't want to go to places where you already have an expectation to be overvalued, and uh, and that you're under pressure to spend a lot of money. Uh, we'd rather see you innovate in Cape Town or in uh, you know, in Sacramento. Yeah. yeah. So, what advice will, are you going to give them? I mean, uh, but these guys, well, it's so close. You know, it's so close to my my old heritage. I have to see if if all the skeletons are still alive <laughs> in my in my world. Um, but I, I know it really well. No, my advice is really let's get the let's get the MVP going. Let's get the basic uh, subscription model going, the adoption, the virality. Then everyone in Silicon, there are certain things in Silicon Valley that everyone will look at. One is a a daily active user, a rapidly growing adoption, a solid business model, and a universal proposition. Those things, they will jump on. I mean, their only question at that point is, why you and why not the other guy down the street is doing something similar? 
But if you could answer that question, they will pile on and they will lift you up really fast. And I think that's an exciting thing to do. Yeah. Um, have you tried the rock clock? No, um, because I took one look at it and I remembered this sort of stuff. When I was going through, there was all kinds of, all kinds of celebrity-based media apps. So I haven't tried it yet. I, might, I immediately went over to Rooster and just tried that. Yeah. Um, yeah, because uh, I, was, I was in that era where we went to all these celebrities and told them, hey, there's new media coming along. We've got ringtones. Do you know what that's like? You know, and I've actually still got an old video of uh, William Shatner <laughs> you doing one of our ringtones because we were promoting it. Um, so I went through that. It's a horrific, <laughs> horrific experience. I don't think rock is enough. The rock is enough for your whole life or for an alarm clock. No. But uh, it certainly sets a, you know, sets some sort of benchmark there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to talk to you about Cape Town and the startup ecosystem there. Um, I was interviewing Mike Ronsky. I don't know if you, if that ring, if that name rings a bell. He's also quite a young guy. He sold Fuseware um, for an undisclosed sum. And then started Digital Flow, and he's built some pretty cool platform, mobile platform apps and so mm -hmm. on. And I phoned him the other day. I said, look, mate, do you want to come and join my mastermind? And he said, um, I'd love to, but I'm moving to Cape Town. I said, like, well, why is that? And he said that he's moving to Cape Town because that's where it's all happening. So in other words, what he was saying was that the tech scene down there is far more one developed and too, you know, attractive um, when it comes to startups, um, what in you, I mean, you live there and obviously you live and breathe this, this, this environment all the time. Where is it at now? I had no idea okay. that it existed. I moved to Cape Town for other reasons. I had a friend down there. We were actually going to do a bunch of innovations together. None of that panned out, but I found myself in the middle of this growing and thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem. And, uh, you know, it's, it sort of feels like, it feels like, it feels like San Francisco, um, you know, but 15 years back, um, but with all the potential and, and how many, you know, Zach and Philip are very good examples. These people, Americans will come over and they'll just stay. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> They can't leave. Yeah. And I don't blame them because I've been all over the world and I cannot think of a better place to live. Mm. Honestly. So no, no, you were talking me out of going to the States. Well, you know what? A great place to visit. <laughs> I know a lot of people want to, uh, you know, I think they feel like they have to just get some some sort of alternative to the craziness of what we have here. But uh, once you have it, uh, you really do see it as, as, look, South Africa is hard to beat. Cape Town's probably one of the hardest places to beat in South Africa. I have lived everywhere. Santa Monica, you know, the... the um, you said, how many years did you spend in the States? 32. 32. Okay, 32 so years. you would know. Yeah, I've, I've been you, all over the place. Like you're the authority, like Cape Town rocks. What I can yeah. tell you is the United States is extremely good at marketing. Okay. We don't know how to market here. We've got the substance, but none of the marketing. They have the marketing. I'll leave it as an open judgment with how much of the substance they have. Yeah. Okay. Um, you mentioned, who's this friend of yours that you were going to do innovations with? Can you mention? Yeah, yeah. No, he's a, he was the founder of um, O'Keefe and Schwartz. as an outbound call center. His name's Russell Brown. Okay. Oh, yeah, old friends. In fact, he was part of my. Brown's a great surname. Must say. <laughs> it's not shiny black. Um, he's uh, he was he was part of a South African kind of uh, commune that we had in in San Jose during what I might call the survival years, the early nineties, um, and self taught himself computer programming and was actually an innovator himself. So mm. um, built uh, tele telephony systems. So we've always been kind of watching each other, what, what each other is doing. 
the obvious question now obviously is, um, or maybe it's not obvious, but it's what's your innovation process? Do you have one? It's become second nature. I mean, literally, I just walk around all the time trying different ideas, you know, and, and many, if it doesn't matter to me if it's a mechanism or just a concept. You know, it's just, it's just become that I've, I'm, I've gotten worse. <laughs> what do you mean you've gotten worse? I've gotten worse I mean, because he's a dreamer, right? I did an analysis the other day, a personality analysis, and I came up 94% at imagination and I posted on Facebook and I'm like, oh, so all my friends were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, what that means is 6% realism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To your point, I mean, entrepreneurs aren't realists or if they see a line or something that resembles reality, they do everything they can to fuck that reality up. Yes, but there is such a thing as an entrepreneurial team. So you get the one person who's going to constantly test reality and then he has to surround himself or her, surround themselves with the kinds of people who say, I know how to interpret that. Let me take a prototype and stop, stop talking about that piece now because we've proven it doesn't work. Here's what you need to start talking about. And they help you. They create the skeletal structure behind which you can innovate. Now, I've, uh, I've, I've expanded a little. So I now have the discipline of an idea knowing that it's an entertainment idea or it's a possible actionable idea, you know. Um, but my South African partner, the CTO, who's still in the States, he's now a head of ecosystem for IoT in, in Intel. But he was the C CTO that started, you know, mobile, mobile, um, mobile co uh, content distribution. And he would always just sit, sit. We'd have fights. That was the fun part. We'd have fights every day. Where I was saying, we want to do this, this, and this. He's like, it's impossible. You can't do that. You can't do this. You can't. And then eventually he'd, he'd yield and create a prototype. And we're like, cool, I'll go sell this. <laughs> so please don't you. sell beyond the prototype. I'm like, too late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hindsight's a perfect science. Uh -huh. But yeah, I mean, the thing is being an entrepreneur, being the front line of the CEO type role is that you're out there selling the vision and demonstrating it with a prototype. But the vision is always well beyond the prototype. You know, you're always straining on, here's the idea. Give us some cash and we'll catch up. Maybe a quarter of the way halfway, we'll catch up to that idea. Do you think innovation is kind of pointless if, if it's not tied or extricably linked to a vision for either something of personal benefit like sustainability, so you know, fixing the world's water supplies mm. and so on, or a vision that defines a new type of organization or company in the future? You know, um, I was going to say no, not at all, <laughs> because so many of the innovations that really have an impact on society, the people didn't know they were going to invent that. They were trying to do something else entirely. Yeah, but, it happens by mistake often. Yes, yes. However, um, I have had the theory looking at Africa for a while, looking at other developed nations, that it is not education or food that is necessary to start with. It is energy. Energy is that drives our ability to execute on anything, Right. So I started thinking about even, even water supplies, you know, you can desalinate the ocean, but you need the energy to do it. Many of our, most of our problems can be solved. Bringing telephony and bringing systems in requires energy first. So I was starting to think about energy and I got approached by a guy who, who said, um, I want to create a solar exchange where people anywhere in the world can buy solar panels in Africa and lease them back. So we can have all these solar panels spread across the continent allowing people to get access to power and people in far-flung places get an income from it. Mm. I'm like, well, that's kind of crazy. Let's talk about this in three years. He came back to me in six months and it was three years further on that he'd gone. Okay. And then he's launched. And we actually just did our, we just, we just sold out our second crowdfund on it. It's called the Sun Exchange. And it's awesome. 
a British guy came to Cape Town. Brit. A Brit came to Cape Town. I don't necessarily like the Brits that much. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> I mean, you're British. It's fine. Apparently I do. Um, <laughs> he came to Cape Town uh, working for a corporate in solar uh, installations and looked at Africa and said, what? This is ridiculous. Let me create this new business. It's been brilliant. We've now shifted it over. He got funded out of Silicon Valley. Um, we shifted the company to Delaware. It still operates in South Africa and Southern Africa as the primary source of consistent, high value solar energy. And people are buying it from all over the world. Mm. It's, it's just it's such an awesome, so that's FinTech, which I have zero interest in. <laughs> Why is and that? energy. And I didn't think, well, I just, it just, that's nuts and bolts. I'm not, I'm, I need so... nuts and bolts people around me. I don't like to focus on nuts and bolts. So FinTech seemed like nuts and bolts, but it had this vision associated with it that really excited me. Mm. I suppose that goes some way to explaining why you're involved in the stem cell side of things. Oh, no, the stem cell is my passion. That's, that's the heart one. That one, this is, this is where you can have a successful career and solve so much pain on the planet. It's just ridiculous. Um, this one is, it, it, I, I'm actually only now starting to talk about it because it's, it's, it's so revolutionary that it's a little bit crazy, but essentially a partner of mine has an ability to take a piece of your skin and give you back a vial of your own embryonic stem cells with which you can remake all of your organs. Kidding me. No, no, this is the reality. It's, it's like not, as in, this is a legit thing. It's a legit thing. This is the, the point is it's always been talked about in the States. They're all focusing on a different course. They're trying to remanufacture adult stem cells to have this embryonic process. He's able to do it practically, ethically and efficiently in a lab. You know, you know, when my son was born or beforehand, they give you the forms to fill out and it mm -hmm. says, if you Cold blood, the cord blood thing. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And then it's like, well, you've only got this time to do it. Otherwise, that's you're screwed. Now it's not true. So now it's not true. From an 80-year-old. Good, because I told him to go and fly. <laughs> I you know. didn't, by the way. All three of my kids, I bought it. But I recently cancelled it when I had... Okay. When I got to a level where I was absolutely certain that we were able to get embryonic stem cells made out of my, my kids' uh, skin, I called up the Amer American place and I said, cancel them. And then they try to convince me. Do you realize this is your last yeah, chance? Yeah, of course, yeah. Would you like to donate? No, I don't want any of that. Do you want us to tell you about no, Do you want me to tell you about stem cells? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> do you know what I'm doing? Because your business is about to go out. You know, it's going to be disrupted. Mm -hmm. So the cord blood business was, yeah, and, and again, marketing, right? What, what's, catch you. Sorry, I'm interrupting you. I'm just bursting. It's your job, with, isn't it? Yeah, not, no, not really. I just, I'm, my job is to listen, apparently. But uh, <laughs> no, it's the listeners to listen. Yeah, yeah that's, that's true. That's true. It's true. Yeah, you see, disruption in action. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. No, I wanted to just like, but so, so this startup in essence is going to allow anyone to effectively solve any number of diseases, right? Incurables. So the first cancer, for instance. Yes. So the first, basically, anything that has to look. The thing about cancer is we all have cancer in us. And it gets worse and worse as we get older. What happens is our immune system gets less and less adept at fighting the cancer. That's why we see it more in the elderly. What we have with this embryonic stem cell capability is to reset your immune system at any age. And it's just, this stuff is mind. Okay, so you see, this is what drives me on a daily basis. Yeah, I, Things like this. Yeah. You know, um, and, and, and this is not just lab stuff. He actually did a trial with a quadriplegic in 2012. It's documented. The guy's got a Facebook page. Did the world's first transplant of embryonic stem cells into the guy's 
spine, spinal cord, where it was broken. Yeah. And he'd been quadriplegic for, for six and a half years. Now, I'm not going to tell you he got up and walked. What I'm going to tell you is he's happier today. He's alive. And he, he improved by two grades on the Asia scale, which is what they measure improvements on. So the stem cells regrew the spine, reconnected parts of his body. He's got his sensation back and uh, did not cause all of the things that the scientists said would happen. Teratoma formation, you know, tissue rejection. It can't tissue reject, it's your own tissue. So amazing, just absolutely mind-blowing. Um, so is this your startup? I mean, is yeah. it you, you the guy with this guy and yeah. you're going to go and take this thing? Yeah. So how how would I how can I sign up? Like, is there an app that I can do? Oh, <laughs> funny. We're in this stage that's very difficult, I must say, because almost everyone I speak to knows a person or another person beyond that who has a you know terminal disease. And the the, the great issue here is it's not ready yet. We can do it experimentally, but but my partner has done it and got in trouble for doing stuff without waiting for the uh, industry. For the academics. Well, I mean, the industry is going to be playing catch up for a long time. It, it sounds is. like it. No, no, I think they'll catch up quick. You see, once you do something first, then everyone goes, okay, it's like the four minute mile or the first heart transplant. There were numerous doctors in the States waiting to do the first heart transplant, but we had to have our guy go and do it because it's Africa. Roll up your sleeves and do it, right? And is there a name for the, for the company yet? Autorogenic. Autorogenics Autorogenic. Uh, Cell Laboratories. Yes. Yes. Amazing. We're just about, we're starting to come out now and, uh, it's terrifying. You're going <laughs> to scare a lot of the corporate fat cats. Yeah, yeah, but what do I care? What I care about is these people who are suffering, who have a, yeah. who have a, and now what my greatest fear is creating false hope. Mm. I don't want to create false hope. This is why we're trying to pause. We want to be really, really certain. All the lab work is showing that it all works. The one human trial works, animal trials work, but now we've got to, we've actually been approved for a clinical trial and we're starting the clinical trials, which will be formal and, and you'll have the data against them. But uh, I have no doubt because of my biology background, this stuff all makes complete sense and it's been shown in the lab. So, uh, so when, so when are we talking like a three year trials period? No. Shorter than that? Six months. Yeah. Six months. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Six months for the spinal cord. And, and, and um, sorry, obvious question. Will it be affordable? How will you ensure that you, you get the economies the of scale there? The affordability has to be scaled against the cost of the disease. So in spinal cord in the United States, an average a quadriplegic will cost between four and six million dollars in their year, in their life to, um, to sustain them. So that's, that's what's going to cost me to sustain my life. Yes. As a quadriplegic. Yes. Your, your, your family or whatever, your extended family as yeah. they slowly basically um, bankrupt you while they're trying to support this person. Um, the, our treatment, we believe, we, we're only going to do the lab part where we create the, what you might call the medicine, it's the biologics that, that we give to the neurosurgeon, the neurosurgeon implants it. The entire cost is probably $100,000 for the entire operation. That's for free here? Yeah, I mean, you know, that, that is at a point where it's affordable for people to round up and get it done. It's, in the United States, that's a cheap operation. Here, it's kind of an expensive operation, right? It's five o'clock. Yeah, okay, I've got to get another call. <laughs> Stay tuned for part two of the man, the legend that is Anthony Stonefield. Yikes. <laughs> and we're back. So now that your international deal has been concluded, <laughs> <laughs> one would hope. let's pick up things and, and, and I want to continue on this thread of innovation. Where do, where do you think the need of innovation exists the most? 
Well, you know, um, I spent most of my life being bored with the pace of change and always looking forward to change. I will honestly tell you right now, the world is in such a state of change that it actually is unbalancing and unnerving for someone like myself. I actually think now you have to, you have to pick a niche and really be an expert in it to be able to manage the change. Or you have to do what I do, which is I deal multiple, but I recognize general shapes of, of, of change. And, uh, and I'm able to address them depending on what the business context is. I, long way of saying changes everywhere. And the people that should be really concerned are those that are sitting there coining it and thinking it's going to go on forever mm. because everything around us is showing that it ain't going on forever. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree. I mean, I, oftentimes I get this feedback from, uh, clients that I see and they go, no, there's nothing wrong with my business. And I'm like, okay, well then why am I here? Yeah. You know? So, and it's, and it's interesting, uh, to explore because I always find it in my consulting capacity that I have to spend quite a lot of time, um, getting my clients off the problem train that they're on and onto the real problem. And that consultative process can be very lengthy and actually time consuming because I'm incentivized to understand clearly what the problem is. And as we execute the deployments of any new digital service to make sure that we always keep an eye on the problem because the problem is actually a moving target. Mm -hmm. Having said that, you need to get the client to move on to the issue and to buy into the, um, the reality, like we're talking about reality earlier. Um, and it's, I suppose the point I'm trying to land here is that it's very difficult to do and it's, it takes a lot of time and effort and if you can't even talk solution until you get the client to start speaking the right language. And, you know, like one of my clients is a 60 year old company, it's deeply steeped culture in this um, philosophy of innovation, but nothing in the digital mm. space whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So they're claiming innovation, but innovation in this category um, is awesome like, like, and South Africa is quite well known internationally for innovating in this category, but under no circumstances are they able to even address this digital need. And that's kind of where I find myself in at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, the thing is innovation is vastly changing every business we know. I, I just don't, you know, look, I just got off an attempted commodity trade. <laughs> that's a very strange experience to be in when you're a tech person. However, the mechanisms for making those trades and for checking each other out, you know, and for doing KYC, these things are now take minutes where they used to take months. Mm. So the pace has increased. Every company, I, uh, uh, generally, if you're feeling comfortable, is the time not to. Is the time to, sc to scope around and say, where am I going to get sideswiped by a disruption or by a competitor? Where am I going to run headlong into a blocked path, which I thought was open forever? And... To your point earlier, how do I change the culture of my business? Don't change it. Bend the culture of my business mm. towards being innovative and being ready for these challenges, being ready to pivot, just like we expect the entrepreneur to do. Mm. We need big companies to be able to pivot, and they can always pivot within a controlled environment. They can do these calibrated changes. But insofar as starting to do those calibrated changes, I think you'll see it culturally it's spread across the company. Mm. And good, hard cog workers will soon start becoming 
much more effective and uh, and have a lot more gearing on them. Mm. One of the tools, funnily enough, we're talking about this, but one of the tools that um, I'm literally releasing in the next day or two, depending on when my my techie can uh, pull this this thing off. But basically, it's called a digital health score. And what it does, it's designed to test the digital fitness of an organization. And it's um, it's 40 questions covering strategy, people, uh, technical, and, the, and funnily enough, the ability to spot disruption. And what it does, it's a weighted matrix, and then it spits out a visual representation of how you perform as a company today. But what it also does, it gives you industry benchmarks. So it'll say, uh, hi, Mr. Client, you actually under-index against other competitors in the insurance industry. Uh, or in the creative agency or professional services or management consulting or aviation. And the data doesn't exist before. There's never been a, um, a, a kind of a set methodology that's statistical, statistical data, I guess, based. Mm-hmm. You'll know more about this stuff than I will. Um, but it's one, it's a great tool for leads to understand actually where the problems exist, um, but also for clients to understand how are they actually indexing against the yeah. industry standards yeah. because for years, standards in the digital space in South Africa didn't exist. Right. Um, and like individuals like Arthur Goldstack is also one mm-hmm. of the first guests on the show have got done a lot of work to establish benchmarks yes. through research. And like, for, for instance, social media. Yeah, I reference him all the time. He's great. Do you? Yeah, yeah, he's such a cool dude. And so he worked closely with Mike Ronsky. That was the chap mm-hmm. I was talking about earlier. Um, so I'm excited to put this in markets and try and, you know, get as much data as we can into it so that companies can actually use a tool that says, listen, Mr. Client or Mr. Company, you're actually in deep shit here because you can't spot disruptors, let alone deal with them. So it's interesting. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, one, one of the greatest challenges a person has is they only have the view of themselves. You have all these blind spots about your own yourself. And I think that is applicable to a corporation as well. You're all going in a particular di- direction. When you come into a company after the first three months, you're in, you're in, you're part of the machine. Suddenly all your attention is in one direction mm. and you don't, you, you carry that confidence that you're fine in all the other directions and no, no, no. We have to have a periscopic view. We have to be scanning all the time now. The world is in serious change and it's not going to stay outside the borders mm. of the country. It's, it's funny how consulting services typically fall into like the research, product development and or communication space. And it's for now, when you look at the disruption that's happening everywhere, it's almost like you need to have a full-time team looking at the world that's that's out there i mean mm-hmm. take exponential technology yeah so it doesn't do one two three it does like you know one two four sixteen and so forth right. there's only seven iterations and suddenly you in a, can be in a lot of shit or mm-hmm. under a lot of threats mm-hmm. over the top services was a classic one yeah. you know yeah. um and well, let me give you one that i found quite uh, even when i was with uh, nokia and i was still in dubai and looking over the whole of africa this whole notion of the unbanked or the uh, underbanked yeah. It's so interesting. We all think, how are we going to create an application for them to start adopting banking services? No, it's not. Go- it's going to value. It's going to, you know, virtual value. You'll be able to transfer. Uh, we, we're stuck in the old business model. Virtual value. You basically got a code on your phone and you transfer the code to someone else and they give you a product or a service. Mm. It's, uh, so banking has to become that intermediator somehow. Not the old system that we're looking at. Cashless economies are starting, right? The, the Nordic companies, the countries are starting it now. This, this stuff is happening fast and it's accelerating. 
So, uh, yeah, we've got to be on our, and thankfully the folks like ourselves who are kind of used to this and actually find it quite inspiring and, um, and can keep a clear head and say, I know where you're going to go now. Yeah. Let's back up from that party and look at where we have to recalibrate and we have to open up our scope. Yeah. Um, do you have any specific views or interesting takes on blockchain and virtual currencies? Again, this is a very, very cool trend. I mean, I'm, I'm using Bitcoin now. I, it, it took me, I kept on hearing about it and I was like, ah, oh, you know, damn, it's like at least three minutes I have to spend setting up a blockchain, a, 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 a Bitcoin account. Yeah. Um, but I found it incredible. It's so much easier to make transactions. It's so much easier to move things around. It's so easy to actually play the arbitrage and actually make mm. a little money every day. Yeah. It's just, and then, and then to see one business after the other adopting uh, cryptocurrencies and, blo- and and blockchain. One of the companies I have uh, uh, an advisory ship with is is a South African company defining the future of digital identity. It's another awesome thing. It's called Consent. I don't know if you've heard of Consent Global. Yeah, that's the same. Yeah, I, I, th- I definitely have heard the name. That Vinny Lingham is also doing similar thing, isn't he? Or I believe there is, but, I, but when you get into the depth of it, this one is is quite different. Is, is, it's it, Consent it Global. Okay, it's cool. Very, it's it's awesome. I mean, the biggest issue we have in our meetings, uh, strategy meetings, is how do we describe this? You know, it's basically it's hard to tell someone that your future identity is something that is, you know, uh, help. You know what I mean? It's like okay, that's scary. It's yeah. going to be the way my car recognizes me. It's going to be the way the bankers. Re- it's going to be the way you walk into a room and you're automatically virtually connected with other people because somewhere out there in the ether, there's something that knows you and is only allowing other systems to read the parts that you want to because there's a privacy issue. But it's linking you to the world and to every transaction, your own authentic, digital authenticated identity. These guys are creating it and they've already done a, um, a proof of concept for uh, uh, APSA. And are now going right. international with it. I mean, who would who would even think about that? Because because know your customer is like a billion rand line item cost for banks, isn't it? Well, and also KYC. I mean, these things would be automatic. This this is, it'd be firstly it uses blockchain because it's distributed ledgers, yeah, right, it's distributed ledger. So there's no uh, the authority is already established in it. it's authenticated digital identity, which will then allow you to determine what parts of your identity are exposed to whom, and people can buy. Mm. access to your identity and you can expose it to different people and you can use it for introductions for access it's it's one of those mind-blowing things that you know is going to become mainstream i'd love to see that what's going to happen with bitcoin i mean i'm just i'm not i don't actually know what i'm talking about but just thinking about currencies and payments and so forth how that's going to affect things like digital media business models because the digital media space is ripe for epic disruption so no, I unfortunately wasn't paying attention when someone told me just a few days ago that there's a South African company using blockchain to, oh, I think it might be in the launch lab, still in Bosch, using blockchain to create um, digital tracking okay. of, of uh, a distributed media, yeah. which, is, which is something that, I mean, in the old days for us, it was digital watermarking, fingerprinting, yeah. watermarking, because that was completely ignored. No one cared about that. But when you use blockchain, now you have an absolute you know, external authority which is, uh, you know, no single person owns. Mm. <laughs> it's almost religious. Yeah. And it was invented because of the bit, in order to deliver yeah. virtual currency, yeah. Bitcoin, right? Yeah. Yeah. Again, not, was not the main purpose of the invention, Yeah, but just so happened to be now the spine against the whole new body yeah. being built. That's crazy, man. Yeah. It's awesome. Um, just conscious of time. 
Yeah, unfortunately, that's. I know. That's I feel just, well, we, we all get old, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> shit, I hate it when that happens. <laughs> but let's move on to the final part of the interview. Yeah. Um, some rapid fire questions. Oh, jeez. See how you do. Um, if you could give a twenty-minute TED talk, what would you talk about? A stem cells. Absolutely, without a doubt. I'm very, very excited about the innovation of how it hits the actual human body. Okay. We're we're we're, we're approaching transhuman. What does that mean? Uh-oh, don't. Okay. It's another transhuman. Transhuman. Is that is that episode th- part part 3? It's, it's where we it's where we emerge out of our biological bodies into biomechanical bodies and finally just virtual. Do you believe in cryogenics? Is it cryogenics? The reason why there's two, there's cryogenics and there's something else. Yeah, well, with the stem cells you cryopreserve them all the time and yeah. then you thaw them and they can work again. Are you going to do that? No, yeah, we do that. We already do that. No, I'm saying, are you going to do that? Get myself frozen. Yeah. I'm hoping to rebuild my entire body before I need yeah, to yeah. freeze it. <laughs> I don't mind plugging on a huge like mechanical arm. <laughs> that would yeah, be yeah. cool too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you could put your entrepreneurial journey onto a billboard, what would that billboard say? Uh, a word I wouldn't want to put in public. Holy. <laughs> that was just been a heck of a ride and, yeah. you know, a reason to be, really. Okay. Uh, what keeps you up at night? Um, I'm not as worried about the environment. I don't want to de- deep, deep go into it, but I'm not as worried about that. Um, I, think, I think when you have precious people in your life, when you start having children, you just, you just worry about crazy people and their inability to control emotions mm. um, that can somehow hurt the people that you care about. Uh, so I'm really eager to figure out, we need to get a personal protection system. Like it's something that really, really works where if you feel like you're in trouble, you hit a button and bang, you are protected. You're in a shield, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, I used to, before there's other products in the market now, but about three years ago, we were developing a band because outside of chipping a child, it was a tracking system, basically. Mm-hmm. It basically operated on the same principle. Mm-hmm. And we put about a million bucks into it, and we couldn't get the thing small enough for it to make any right. real commercial sense. Mm-hmm. And it was a tough lesson to learn, because we were taking on the Chinese at their own game, effectively, and we were trying to like build it locally to reduce the costs and avoid the kind of you know, import GTs that you, that you incur when you, you know, import tons of stock from, from Mm -hmm. China. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, it's, I think that's a great space. I mean, I I don't know who's going to solve that one day. Um, Well, that's just on the tracking. And you know, it's funny, you realize how long you've been in the innovation space where you bring that up and I'm like, Oh boy, I saw like four of those in Silicon Valley live and then die. The one that actually has succeeded the most that I last looked at was at Qualcomm. And Mm. instead of, because of all the legal issues and the, and, the, and the size issue and it not being cool to wear. So they went and made it a pet tracker. Uh, so yes. it's one way of getting it out. And yeah. let the market go, works on my dog, I'll try it on my kid. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. No. Yeah, you'd rather lose a dog than a But again, a, child, yeah. a million bucks, which is really chicken feet, honestly, when yeah. you look in the grand scheme of what you're trying to do. Mm. I would say you and I should go and look at that tech and see what's really available in it, not abandon the fact that the app didn't work. Yeah. There is stuff in there that you did that has the basis of something else. Yeah, I just didn't know at all what I was doing. I just had this idea and vision, and I was like, I'm going to make it rain. And then I got on board like an angel investor, mm-hmm. and yeah, he just said, look, mate, we 3D printed the final products, everything. And 
we just he was like, well, no. I can tell you there's something in there immediately. I'm sorry, I just feel it. Yeah. So it's worth looking at. Well, I'm, I'm happy to yeah. pick your brains on it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so if you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice about life or business, um, but to yourself as a 20 year old, what would you, what would you say? Oh, jeez, That is so rich, man. That is so rich. Um, I think it's a matter of, I, I think it's a matter of believing more strongly in following through with your passion. But at the same time, there was a lot of blindness in, in, the, in the youth there. So I, that's a kind of offset against that. So I think I have listening tools better now and watching tools for what else is going on and what I'm hearing reflected in my blind side um, than just pursuing your passion. So it's kind of that combination. If yeah. I would have, if I, I, I wish I was then, back then. I think I, I look at my little kids and I say, I wish. You had my experience right now because you would be a superhuman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I oh, know. That's cool. It's awesome to think about what they're going to be exposed yeah. to. In the One short of is to say, right? dad is full of shit. Yeah, no. <laughs> so, you know, for the first time, I mean, I'm, I'm relatively young, so I'm 38. And for the first time in my life, I actually feel like I'm not keeping up with technology. No, it's true. You can't. There's that nothing wrong with you. me and you're, a techno- and you're a tech guy. Yeah. You're on the front. That's what I was saying earlier. The change is so fast right now. Yeah. That really... Guys like us, our, like ourselves, all we really know is where to cling onto the couch better mm. than other people, you know, and where to try to maneuver yourself around. Yeah, updrafts. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm. Know where to navigate towards the invisible updrafts. Totally. Yeah. Um, what is one injustice that you see in the world? Or one major injustice that you feel entrepreneurs should tackle you're gonna have to edit this <laughs> i always do always do oh one injustice i love these questions but i was not ready for them <laughs> no it's fine um it's not really rapid fire the, the, un, the un, injustice uh i think i think the injustice is almost a biological thing or sociobiological thing and that is that uh f- fear and greed um, get, get, get progress. They get ahead. And, and those that really want a communitarian benefit for all get squashed. That really yeah. pisses me off. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you really have to be a sociopath in many cases to get ahead. And that's, and, the, and that's not good for us Mm-mm. because it tends to be more short-sighted and, 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 uh, and for very few individuals. Yeah. I think the whole monetary system is the one for me. Yeah, I mean, uh, money is really just, a, in my world, a trans, it's, a, it's a manifestation of energy, right? Because it has an effect. It's yeah. an effect of energy. We need to move to that. So each of, then I guess the, the inequities will be that some people have a whole bunch of energy <laughs> and others don't have very much. But, in, you know, yeah. there is a lot attached to money that, uh, yeah. that, is, that, that is difficult for a human. Uh, I love this one. There are always the haves. And then they have mores. Yeah. 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 There's also the have nots. I've seen them too. <laughs> yeah. True. That's true. Absolutely true. Um, when you hear the word successful, who do you think of and why? Elon Musk. I think this is everyone's favorite right now. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so many tech guys have man crush on him. He is reaching for, uh, there are a couple of things I don't agree with him on. I don't think we need to move to Mars. 
I really? Think we, no, I think that we've got plenty of deserts and we need energy and ways to colonize the deserts a lot closer. Yeah, that's true. Mars is a hell of a challenge. So, in, but, but I adapt that and say instead of it being 30 years, in 50 or 100 years, sure, Mars is a great place to go. But for I now, sp- I suppose he's chasing the, the hypothetical scenario of, a, um, of an asteroid hitting Earth or what some form of extinction Mars? event. <laughs> well, look, I mean, Trump's there with the keys to the nuclear arsenal of America, so maybe that is probably a good I thing. I think it's safer not to touch that one at all, have you noticed? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, Elon is, is what, he, what he will do, obviously, is a homeboy. You know, that's yeah. fantastic and yeah. to have seen his career. But what I love about him is that is he's happy to throw out inspiring concepts mm. and then actually execute on them. The Hyperloop, you know, SpaceX, awesome stuff, Solicity. Yeah. Um, punchable. Who do you think of? Oh, no, that's not fair. Come it? on. <laughs> do it. Do it. <laughs> do it. Um, I, 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 there, there, there is someone whom many of us want to punch who I think has taken our beautiful country oh. and put it under incredibly desperate threat. And it is hanging by a thread. And I'm, I'm here trying to hold it together like so many of us are. Um, but, you know, selfishness. An irony, that's that's uh, that, that, that what makes me want to punch. I'll punch the air over that. Yeah, me too. I'm with you. Virtual air pump. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, last question for you. Uh, what's your why? Why do you do what you do? Um, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. We're a sentient being. We're popped onto the planet and you look at the children. All they do is explore, explore, explore. This is about exploring and putting stuff together. You know, when I get to the end of my life, I don't think it'll be a tombstone because, you know, I could probably be vaporized or something. Yeah. Well, you'll still be alive. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I, I will have been transformed into a transhuman. Um, <laughs> there's no point then. There's no point. No, no I, I, it is exploration. It's exploring the phenomenon of life. Awesome. Yeah. Mate, thank you so much for your time. This is the man, the legend. <laughs> Such a coup to have you on the show. Um, yeah, really great to get to know you and to connect and just yes. to explore our worlds together. It's been really, really enjoyable and amazing for me. Thank you. Nice to have a free flowing conversation. Yeah, I know. We'll Thank have to you. do that again. So when I'm down in Cape Town, I'll, we'll have to do part three. Let's. Okay, cool. Right. Thanks, Steve. Ciao. Sure. Bye. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the Digital Kung Fu Show. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us. If you'd like more information on Digital Kung Fu, a full show notes listing on this particular episode, or would like to access our growing community of entrepreneurs, simply check out digitalkungfu.co.za and you can find us all over the social media graph. Until next time. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my 
clients. Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com. 